This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world, and welcome to the Mile High Fi podcast. I'm Carl Jensen with my co-host. Hey, I'm Doug Huntington. And today we have a very special guest. Tell us your name and what you do. My name is Jeremy Schneider. I'm the founder of Personal Finance Club. I help people learn about personal finance and investing. And before we get into that, I hear you might have some fun stories about your days running track at University of Michigan. Uh, yeah, I guess I have some fun stories. I used to be very fast. I, uh, I do not come from an athletic family. Neither of my parents were athletes. My brother was not an athlete. And somehow I became the fastest kid at my school. And then I got uh, kind of a recruited walk-on to the University of Michigan um, and earned a scholarship after my freshman year and actually broke a school record at Michigan. And I actually held that school record for 21 years until wow. January of this very year where some punk kid, <laughs> without even asking my permission, ran faster than I did. Um, wow. no, he's actually extremely nice, and I messaged him my congratulations, and my remaining claim to fame is now dead. But apparently I'm still bragging about it on podcasts. Yeah. That, that counts for something. What, what uh, events did you run? I ran the 400 and 800. For track fans, I ran a 46.8 and 149. And then my school record was actually the 600, which is an indoor-only event, and that was a 117.3. Wow. Yeah. And how much did he break your record by? A lot. He crushed it. He ran a 115, which two seconds in that event is, you know, might as well be days. Um, but, you know, the fact that it stood for 21 years is pretty crazy. So I'll take it. Two Thanks, seconds. Guys. That's crazy. After yeah. all those years to come and break it by that much. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was just a combination of things like he's really good and we just weren't strong in that event for a long time. Also, when I ran, it was a, a flat track and I ran on a, and so, if you don't know tracks like you know nor a normal track you see like high school is flat all the way around but indoor tracks are now banked where it's like the outside is higher so when you're running because indoor tracks are 200 meters instead of 400 meters so they're much tighter turns which is very hard to like make tight turns when you're running super fast so they bank them like a like a car race track um and i ran on a bank track exactly once when i was in college 21 years ago and uh, and that's when i set the record and so you know, tracks are just faster now, which is maybe why we, I don't know, yeah. maybe why we saw such a big break. Wow. And my next question is, it has left my mind and it'll come back to me any second. Oh yeah. How fast are you running? Like how many miles or kilometers or miles per hour are you running when you're, I don't when know. you set that record? Uh, I don't know. Twenties, mid twenties, maybe <laughs> low twenties. I don't, I don't, we don't think about it in terms of miles per hour. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think people t think about it in terms of like mile pace. So like, my my half mile is a 149 and so if i could have done that twice in a row that would have been a 338 mile which would have been a world record by five seconds or so um i cannot do that twice in a row i had to stop immediately and right. was very tired um but you know you're running you know it's very it's like a you know to a non-runner it's faster than they can run it's, it's yeah a, it's faster than a sprint yeah you could like beat my truck off the line i think uh, car, you know, cars not going to be bikes. We're not going to be. I mean, maybe for like you yeah. know, a few meters or something. But yeah. but slower people, and maybe some out of shape dogs. Uh, <laughs> we, we got them. I'm not sure, Doug. I don't think I could beat him even on a bicycle. Maybe the e bike, but, but yeah, that's yeah. it. The e bike. That's <laughs> good pickup. Yeah. Even, even now, 
he could be <laughs> still way faster. <laughs> That's great. How tall are you? You're, you're a tall person. Yeah, I'm 6'4". In okay. college, I was like 178 pounds. Now I'm like 2'0-something. Um, and as big for a runner, I think a lot of people... I feel like my whole life people have dismissed my achievements because I'm tall. They're like, oh, it's easy for you because you're tall. And there's some truth to that. I think tall people statistically get paid more um, and you know get, yeah. get promoted more. But it's not generally helped to runners. There's like no other tall people running. Sure. Um, I didn't mean to discount your, no, no, you your know, achievements. <laughs> I just for the listeners out there who are thinking, oh, it's easy for him because he's tall. Like, yeah. you know, I was I was 100, you know, almost 180 pounds. All my you know competitors were like around 140. And so I had 40 pounds extra to move around that track, right? Because yeah. it's like a body weight exercise. And, you know, there's no yeah. mechanical advantage of being heavier like there might be in, like, rowing or basketball or something where you're throwing your weight around. Sure. Um, so, but, you know, I was tall and skinny, so it's not a terrible comp- combination. Yeah. That's cool. We're going to come back to fitness a little bit because you, you're still in good shape, it looks like. Thanks. So. Uh, I try. Not, you know, not breaking records anymore for sure. Awesome. All right. We're ready to move into the, yeah, the good stuff here. Yeah. So your parents taught you to invest at 16. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. Uh, at the time, it didn't seem weird. I thought that uh, that was just, you know, I was learning a lot of things at 16. You learn to drive, you learn to date, you learn to, you know, apply to colleges or whatever. Um, and I had my very first job. I worked at a summer camp and I think I made $1,200 for the summer. And I feel like I don't feel like I'm that old, but I'm starting to feel like my parents where I'm like, I made a nickel a, a week yeah. and you know, <laughs> we could buy 10 gallons of gas with it. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, it was just the summer camp didn't pay much because summer camps don't think ever pay much. But yeah, we made, I made $1,200 and then my dad basically sat me down and was like, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to like gift you $1,200. Like I'm going to match your, your earnings, but we're going to put it all into a Roth IRA. Um, because the rule of the Roth IRA, of course, is you can't contribute more than you make. And so he recognized it as an opportunity to basically take advantage of this like tax break by um, putting all of my earnings into the Roth IRA. And so he let me keep my 1200 his 1200 went in the Roth IRA. And then we sat down and we like picked some mutual funds. And he like, we went through the Fidelity website and he talked about Morningstar ratings. And, you know, it's not stuff that I would exactly do today with my now perspective on investing, but it's generally very, very good. And it was like, a, um, you know, and at the time, again, I just thought it was normal. But now when I was like in my 30s and now 40s, I talked to my friends and they still don't know this, right? They're like, what's well, a mutual fund? And so I'm like, oh, I guess that wasn't the typical childhood experience. And why, why did your dad like want to show you that? Do you know, like, did he have a strong financial background or, you know, what, what happened there since it's so rare? I don't know. He's always been good with money. Both my parents have. I, we weren't rich growing up. We were like middle class, but I, you know, they were, my parents were married young and were broke and then they got jobs and worked and kind of did the normal thing. And I just think that he wanted to be financially successful and he was investing and understood the power of long-term compound growth and investing early and often and um, wanted to like, you know, get his kids started right. Awesome. What do you invest in now? It's similar. Now I invest in index funds primarily. I mean, two things in general, index funds and real estate. I prefer index funds just because they're a lot less work. It's like clicking two buttons on a website instead of, you know, a whole host of like analyzing properties and managing and all that stuff. Um, and yeah, I invest in things that are likely to go up in value and pay dividends while you own them. And, and index funds are my favorite because they're low fee and they are broadly diversified and they, you know, minimize all the 
you know, nonsense that you can get with speculative investing. And then do you have some uh, real estate then? And can you talk about that a little? I flipped houses for a couple of years, which uh, was okay. You know, we made a little bit of money, um, like not really enough to like account for the effort that we were putting in, I don't think. Um, I, I do have some like uh, syndicated real estate deals where it's basically some organization out there is buying a big apartment building and so a bunch of people all put in a hundred grand each or something so they can afford the thirty million dollar property and then they manage it and then we get you know our share of rent and and profits if it ever sells um you know that's less work because you don't have to like actually you know deal with maintenance calls or even analyzing the property as long as you trust this you know shady group of <laughs> not shady necessarily but shadowy i guess you know you know when you hear about um Ponzi schemes, like that's definitely the world where it can exist. You know, if maybe that property, like I haven't even seen this property, maybe it doesn't exist. Um, but you know, the people who I invest with, I know where they live, so hopefully, um, <laughs> you know, they're not stealing from me. It'll work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you, you do some syndications, right? Yeah, I do syndications ha- as well. Have they worked out for you? Or yeah, so you know, it's it's tough because you know with Ponzi schemes, it looks like it's working out, and <laughs> and there have been some that have like fully closed out, and I left with more money than I came. Um, and some look good on paper and are paying monthly or quarterly or whatever. Um, so largely, I think everything is going to plan, but they're also long-term deals. Like they plan on it being like five to 10 years. And so I think I'm in like year three to four on a lot of them. Yeah. And you don't really know if it's successful until the end, cause they're going to pay you in my case, they've always paid a fixed amount and then the payout is at the end. So it really depends on how much value they're going to add to it. And totally. So. Like the plan that they pitch is always, we're going to buy this like undervalued asset, remodel or raise rents or do whatever, and then sell it five to 10 years later at this huge premium. And they project, you know, these great rates of return or whatever. But yeah, you don't, until they sell, you don't know, you could lose, I mean, you could lose money. So... You like index funds better. It's a little more hands-off. It sounds like uh, more trustworthy in a general sense. Uh, again, not to shit on the syndication folks or anything. But yeah, why invest in real estate if you're just like, ah, you know what, index funds a little more hands-off, maybe your style? Honestly, I lack the confidence to be that simple with my finances. I think that if I was a more disciplined and principled man, I would just <laughs> buy VTSAX and have exactly one fund and uh, just look at everyone with a straight face and be like, I am investing in 4,000 American companies. And, you know, I actually don't love investing just in America. I, I invest more globally, but I'd probably buy VTWAX. It's just not as cool of a ticker yeah. symbol, I guess, sure. um, which is the global Vanguard index fund. Um, yeah, and maybe some FOMO. You know, you hear about these opportunities that have higher rates of return. Maybe some diversification if, you know, the market's having a bad year and real estate does well. Um, but you know, it's one of those things like if you fast forward 20 years, I don't think I'm going to be like much more wealthy for having gotten more complicated with my, you know, breaking up my finances. Um, but you know, you only live once, so you gotta do some stuff. Yeah. So after college, you turned down a job at Microsoft. That's uh, what year was that? And what job did you turn down? The year was 2002 ish, maybe 2003. Yeah, I think it was 2003. Um, and you know, Microsoft was, this was Google was kind of in its infancy. Facebook didn't exist. Apple was a joke. Um, you know, this was back when Apple was not good. I wish I was buying Apple stock back then. Um, so Microsoft was like, you know, king shit tech company, like 
you know, that's where you want to work. And so I was studying computer science and I'd interned there for two summers as a software developer. Um, and they gave me a very nice full-time job. I think the offer was for $74,000 plus $15,000 in, um, you know, bonuses, which doesn't sound like much now. It sounds like less every year because now I feel like right. they're making 250 as a new grad or something like that. Um, but it was for sure more money than I'd ever seen in my life. And uh, I just didn't like working there. I didn't like being, because uh, I had experience for two summers as an intern, I didn't like being a cog in the machine. I didn't like being um, having my work not correlate highly with my you know, pay. I just feel like it was a place where you could kill yourself a hundred hours a week for 10 years and see like, you know, modest increases in promotions and, and, sure. uh, and pay, or you could just kind of phone it in and, you know, just put your hours in and maybe see pretty something pretty similar. Um, obviously there's some people who advance through corporate America and eventually, you know, take over in executive roles or whatever. But, um, yeah, I didn't like that. I would rather start my own thing. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and Carl, how much did you make at your first job? Just for uh, reference. How much money did I make? Yeah. Uh, let's see. That would have been around 1998. And I think I was like 36 or 37 thousand. Okay. And that was software too. I think my highest software was 43 at Motorola. And I probably okay. should have taken that, but sure. Yeah. So Microsoft is a pretty interesting company because like you said, I think Google IPO in August, 2004 and Microsoft had some dark days under Balmer, but now they're kind of rejuvenated under Satya Nadella, is it? Yeah. The CEO. Uh, if you would have taken that job and stayed there, you probably would have had far more money than you do now. And I know you publish your net worth, I saw it on Personal Finance Club. Um, do you ever think about that? And not that money is the end all to anything, but. Yeah, by my math, I think I'm slightly ahead, or at least I was, you know. It's you know, obviously it's impossible to know what my trajectory would be, but you know, if you look at how much I would have been making per year, stock options, or there wasn't even stock options, there's RSUs or stock grants or whatever, whatever they are, and and also you know, Microsoft's doing great, but yeah, there's, there's the, the stock was flat for a long time, so I think I'm slightly ahead, but um, you know, my net worth by the way is around 4.4 million. Um, maybe if I was like super super frugal living in Redmond, which is an expensive place. I could have like invested 75% of my income and bought, you know, more stock, but no, I'm doing fine. And I didn't have to have a job in corporate America for 20 years. So yeah, yeah. came out. Okay. How many, what, one thing you said, and I, th when you said this, I thought about Pete, you said you didn't want to be a cog. You didn't like that. The, there was loose correlation between your effort and your work. I wonder how many fire people like the, the thought I've had about Pete, Mr. Money mustache is I think he just in general doesn't like being told what to do. So that's where fire came from from him, and that's not good or bad. It's just how he is. He doesn't like people telling him how to spend his time, so he got out of that. W would you say you're the same way? or Because that's a pretty big deal to turn down that job, and you went straight to entrepreneurship, right? You never had a normal corporate job, correct? That's true. I never had a full-time job until the day I sold my company. And then the next day I worked for the company that bought mine. Um, but yeah, I've, I've never really connected those dots myself, but I also don't think I like people telling me what to do. A lot of times, even today, people are like, why don't you, know, why don't you move to this state that has better tax or whatever? They, why don't you 
uh, sell it to this company because they're going to pay you all this money? And the answer is, is because I don't want to. Like, yeah. The reason that I have money and have financial freedom is because I can just do whatever I want. I don't have to like sell <laughs> to a company or move to a place I don't want to live. I live yeah. in San Diego. It's expensive, but super nice. And that's what I choose to do. So yeah, I, I like that, that correlation. Maybe that's something. I wonder if like fire people are like more likely to be entrepreneurs. Maybe look at that. Yeah. And I, I came in, I came at it through the entrepreneurship side, but, um, very gradually. And I, I worked at a corporate uh, gig doing consulting, which I didn't like, but I, instead of, you know, doing the entrepreneurship, like this sucks, I don't want to be told what to do. I got into the middle management area and then just like coasted. <laughs> so just kind of blew it off. And I mean, I have a strong work ethic for shit that I'm interested in, but um, I was pretty good at just doing the bare minimum and skating by. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> I mean, there's something said for that. If it's, I, I know a lot yeah. of people in a similar situation where it's like they don't hate their job and it's easy and and less stress. And so, if it's good money, you can yeah, you can coast for a while. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple times that you started a company. Can you talk about your first company that you uh, worked on? Yeah. So it was around the time I turned down that Microsoft job offer. I started a company, and I literally had no clue what I was doing. I was 21 years old or something. I think I Googled, you know, how to start company. I didn't know, like, you have to, like, send a form somewhere or, I, like, the paperwork really intimidated me. I'm like, how does, how do people know I'm starting a company? Like, well, you know, what? And it turns out the paperwork isn't that hard. You, just, you, you can Google, you fill out a form with your state or whatever. Um, the hard part's getting people to give you money. Um, <laughs> that, that's, like, the ongoing challenge of business. Um, and so, yeah. I, I started by trying to just sell websites to people or do anything. I was a computer programmer. Uh, so I was trying to like just get people to pay me to write software. Um, and the first sale I ever made was one of my old landlords. They had this like god awful website and they had like a hundred different properties I rented out, but their website, they had like made it in Microsoft Word and they had like just typed in like stream of consciousness, the hundred properties, <laughs> like some listed bedrooms, some listed rents, you know, there was like maybe a photo or two, no, no order or rhyme or reason this whole thing. And so I, you know, made them a new website from scratch. I like found photos. I, uh, you know, made the ability to search and sort. I didn't ask them to do if, if they needed this. I just did it. I like, you know, put their logo on there, the whole thing and made like a really nice little property website. And then I emailed it to them and said, Hey, I'm a former tenant. Do you want to buy this? And they did not respond to that email. I'm like, dang. And it took me like three days to make that because I was like young and ambitious and worked really hard back then. And um, I was like, man. And I wasn't making any money. I was like living on credit cards just to like eat. And so I was like, I got to, you know, that's three days of work. I need, I need to at least try again. And so I, very shy, and I called them up on the phone, which is like terrifying. Even today, I'm like nervous about calling people on the phone for whatever reason. But I called him <laughs> up on the phone and he answered and I said, Hey, I'm Jeremy. Uh, I'm a former tenant. I made you a new website. Did you get, and I emailed it to you. Did you get it? And he said, no. And I said, Oh, um, can I email it to you again? And can you take a look? And he said, sure. And so I did. And at the time, this website was being hosted on a computer in my living room. And so I could see how many people were like, connecting to it, which was of course zero because no one knew it existed. <laughs> and then we hung up and then I saw that like one person was connecting to it. And then it said one for like 30 seconds and then it went back to zero. And then it was like quiet again. I was like, well, you know, proud of you for like, proud of myself for making the call at least. 
And then the phone rang and it was that, it was that guy. And he said, he's like, yeah, that looks great. We'll take it. And I was like, what? And he said, how much does it cost? I was like, I didn't think we were going to get this far this fast. I don't know what to do here. Uh, I've never sold anything before. Um, and so I literally made up a price on the spot as though I had a product. And I, I think I quoted $3,000 plus $300 a month, which just seems like an outrageous amount of money to charge someone like a monthly fee for a website. But at the yeah. time, it was like, it's a yeah. different time where you like needed more hands-on help with this sort of stuff. Um, and he said, could you do $2,000? These are true numbers, by the way. Like, I remember these to yeah. this day. But he said, can you do $2,000 and $300 a month? And I said... I don't even know if I said how fast I said yes, but of course I said yes to that. Um, and and then you know we hung up and I he, you know, sold them the website installed. He paid and I was like I was like man three hundred bucks a month. If I sell ten of those, that'll be three thousand a month. And it's yeah. like you start doing the math and uh, yeah, that's how I made my first sale. That's cool. And how how important was you? How important was it for you to close that deal? Like because that you know you put all the time into it. You didn't know what you were doing, <laughs> and then you got this momentum and a nice rush, I'm sure. So, yeah, it was, it's an, I mean, if in entrepreneurship, you know, it's like an emotional roller coaster. you know, the previous week, the story that I'm not telling, I didn't make any sales. Right. And, you know, I, I'm, yeah. I emailed some other people. I, you know, was, you know, doing whatever I could to make money and none of it was working. And so, you know, it's like existential dread. You're like, how am I going to afford food? How am I going to have health insurance? Um, and then you make a sale and then you're like, oh my gosh. Then you start doing the math. You're like, I'm going to be a billionaire. Like, <laughs> how many landlords are there in the US? If I sell them all on the website for $300 a month, I'm going to have so much money. Um, and so definitely, you know, but I guess you're fueled by those like small wins because if without them, you know, you, you wouldn't keep going. Um, yeah. And so, and strangely, because of that sale, you know, before that moment, I'd never been in real estate. I knew nothing about real estate other than renting an apartment for a few years in college. I knew nothing about, you know, real estate at all. And because of that sale, the next 12 years of my life, I was in like real estate technology and was selling landlords products. Cool. So you said that went on for 12 years before you sold or? Yeah. So that was the first sale. And then for 12 years, we never took any venture capital, never took any outside funding, never took any debt. We just, uh, tried to spend less money than we made and then grew the company for 12 years. And then yeah, sold it when I was 34. Okay, so what was the maximum number of employees that you had? When we sold, there were seven of us. Actually, a year or two after I started, I brought my mom on as a co-owner. I sold her, I mean, I'm making air quotes if you're watching on YouTube. I sold her 30% of the company, and so I owned 70%, she owned 30%. And then, then we had five employees, so there was only seven of us. It was a small company. We were doing about a million dollars a year in revenue, and then we sold the company for just over $5 million. And did you actively look for a sale or did someone approach you? Um, around that time, real estate technology was like very hot. Um, you know, Zillow became a thing, uh, you know, Redfin, Realtor.com, um, you know, Apartments.com. All these tech real estate companies were huge. And I actually attended, we're sitting at FinCon right now, and I attended the National Apartment Association Conference and we were, you know, we like had a booth and we we're trying to sell our products to the, the property managers who were there. And we were competing with these like massive companies who like they literally would throw a party at this conference and spend more on the party than we would make in sales in a year. You know, they, they would spend over a million dollars on a party. They would have like big name brand bands and rent out blocks of downtown city streets and just 
cater to like all the you know landlords of the of America, try to get them to sell them apartments.com uh, you know advertising, and then we were here with like a little ten by ten booth with like a sign behind us, you know, trying to sell our stuff. <laughs> Um, and so I'm like, either someone's going to like sue us out of existence or we're going to get acquired because this is like a very volatile space. And so I try to basically set up a bunch of, I'm getting your question. Sorry, I ramble. It's long winded. It's all I know. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. You feel free to edit this all out. Um, but it, so we try to basically set ourselves up to be acquired. Um, you know, they say companies are bought, not sold. So I didn't like go around being like, do you want to buy us? But I was trying to basically position ourselves with a lot of partnerships. So we had tons and tons of industry data and we already had a lot. We had a lot of like landlords using our system and we we're trying to get more rental data. So like anyone that, you know, if Zillow or any of these big sites wanted rental data, cause Zillow didn't have it themselves. They were just like a aggregator. I wanted to be like the source of that data. So someone would be scared, scared into buying us. And one of the partnerships that we approached all the partnerships didn't work out. No one wanted to do it. No one was interested in giving us data. And then one of them we approached, they hated the idea. They said, we don't do partnerships. It was actually like the best company. Like I kind of listed them from like worst to best. And they were the best one that I was like trying to sell last. Um, but I finally emailed them and they actually responded. We got a call. They said they hated the idea. They don't do partnerships. And I was like, great. Thanks for taking this call. But what are we doing here? And then at the end of that call, they're like, well, we don't do partnerships, but sometimes we do buy companies and, uh, th this is something we might want to invest in or buy. And so it's like, oh, and so, yeah. So then they end up buying us. That's like the short story. Wow. That's pretty crazy. And I want to go back. You, you said you never took, uh, outside investment, no other funding. What, why did you do that? Um, primarily cause I had no idea what I was doing and I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to get venture capital. And, um, I guess, maybe this goes back to what you're saying. I don't really like people telling yeah. me what to do and, you know, going with like a slick PowerPoint to Silicon Valley, begging for money that I didn't really know what I was going to do with, um, you know, as a 20 year old or whatever, nothing about that seemed right to me. Um, and so I just tried to sell my product. I've since have started five companies, been the founder, co-founder of five. And one of them is a venture backed tech company um, that I've since like have set back as a co-founder and now I'm just an advisor. And so I've seen like every side of this. Um, but you know, I feel like the grass is always greener. The, the guys that take all this money in VC, you know, have an ax hanging over their head and you know, they don't, you know, you read these stories well, we just took 15 million in funding. You know, they don't get 15 million. It's not like they get to like go buy a house with it or something. They have to like try to use that money to grow a company and pay those people back. Um, and so not having funding, it gives you like ultimate freedom and it's like easier to sleep. You know, we, we were profitable. We had like, you know, six months of payroll in the bank at any given time. So we never worried about, you know, making payroll. Um, yeah, made for a, a comfortable life. Yeah. That's awesome. Doug, I have a question for you or, or maybe it's a proposition for someone watching. If anyone wants to buy a mile high fi, how much do you think we could sell it for? And we'll, we'll throw in our shirts too. Some t-shirts. Yeah. How about some of these uh, inflatable flamingos? Yes, we'll, we'll yeah. do the flamingos as well. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Probably, I don't know. You just said uh, 5 million, right? So I'm thinking like 5 million, something like that for us to put down the mics. Do we have to keep working? 
Jesus, that would be incredible. I was thinking like twenty bucks, but <laughs> twenty. Yeah, well, with the flamingos. Yeah, if someone does five million, I will work forty hours a week for a long time. Really? <laughs> oh, you know what? Probably not. I already have enough too. I don't. I don't yeah, like being yeah. told what to do either. So no, it's yeah, true. Yeah. You have to make that decision. Is it worth? Is it worth yeah. getting a corporate job? You yeah. Saw okay. Okay. Yeah. Spotify, you can't have us. I know yeah. Spotify. Someone's watching it. They're about to offer us five. But let but us know. Yeah, let us know uh, if you have that five million. Ten. Yeah. Ten. I'll ten. Do it. <laughs> went up. Do you want to buy a podcast? Uh, I don't have five million. I have four point five million, and that's exactly. Sold. That's yes. <laughs> Did we say five? We are a little flexible. Um, yeah, no, I had that exact same conversation. Like I remember, we were, you know, driving to Santa Barbara where this company was, and they had given us an agenda that, like, the last item on the agenda was negotiate the purchase of the company. It was, it was a crazy thing to just sit there in a conference room and negotiate. And we'd like come up with a number, just like you, literally just like you guys did. And it was a really weird, like soul searching moment, which is, you know, what is this number? Like if, if they offer a million dollars, like would I say no to that? Um, that's because I was, I was broke at the time, you know, I was driving a 99 Ford Explorer. I was paying myself $36,000 a year living in a, you know, two bedroom with a roommate. Um, you know, I did not have personal money. I had employees. Some of my employees were making six figures, but I personally had no money. And so could I actually turn on a million dollars? And the number we came up with was 2 million. We said, if they offer us one nine, 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 nine or whatever, we would say no. And like, we would be comfortable with that. Um, and then 6 million was the number that we thought that would be really nice if we got it. Um, and so we got five, which is, which is good. Awesome. And any other details on the negotiation or anything, or how did that? Did you say the first number? Or they like slid a paper <laughs> no, to you. I love that question because I feel like I, I hate the secrecy around this kind of stuff. And I, you know, like you said, I post my bank account to my Instagram account, and so I, I like transparency here, just because I think that people talk in code and don't want to, you know, share numbers and whatever. And I, I just like laying it all out there because. It happened, you know, we were in a conference room. And so what happened was all my, you know, I had a few friends who had sold companies. And so I like asked them, you know, or I asked one friend and one business guy and they both said, do not negotiate in person. Like that's a bad move. Like, you know, have your representative, you, you know, make them send, send the first num num number. And I basically ignored that advice and we did negotiate in person. And I, I did that because I really liked these people. I thought everything that they were doing was in total good faith. I thought they were good people. I thought they were a good company. Um, and I thought it would have been a bad strategic move to start like getting weird and playing hardball and being like email my lawyer, you know, it just seemed like that wasn't the, what was going to be the best for either of us. I wouldn't have made like a good partnership. Um, so the way it worked is there's a conference room and, uh, and it said this like bullet item said like negotiate with like, you know, founders. And I had taken that to mean with like the founders of their company. Um, and so the CEO of their company was there, but the two founders were not. And so it was me and my mom, Amanda, it seems weird to say my mom, but she was the other owner and then the CEO. And so I was waiting for the founders to get there. So like he was there and I was like, Hey, I'm going to go get a drink. And so like they had offered me to get a drink at, from their kitchen, which had like free drinks. And so I went to get a drink and I was like, Oh, I'm gonna go to the bathroom. And then, so like for five minutes, I'm just killing time. And then I come back and the CEO was like, are you ready? I was like, I was like, yeah, I've been ready this whole time. 
And he's like, well, it starts. Like, I'm like, are we not waiting for anyone? Like, did I just, did I just like slow roll you? Like, yeah, to, uh, nice. <laughs> I know. Like, I feel like the moment before we're negotiating, I'm like, like this punk kid who rolls up in a 99 Ford Explorer. I'm like, let me go grab a Snapple from your fridge. Um, but that was unintentional. If you're listening, Brian Donahue, I did not mean to like be a dick about that. Um, and so then we sat down and he had a PowerPoint prepared and put it up on like the screen in this conference room. And basically, it had some stuff about other companies that they had chosen not to buy that had higher revenues. I think a lot of it was like um, lowering our expectation, like trying to anchor us to a worse number of saying, hey, these are companies that are bigger than you that were willing to sell for these numbers that we passed on. Um, then he broke down like our lines of revenue because we had like six lines of revenue. And he's basically like five of those lines of revenue don't mean anything to us. And so we would like assign that like a one X multiple, meaning like, you know, if we made $500,000 from that, we would only be willing to pay $500,000 uh, you know, to purchase that. And then the other one had like a three X revenue or something like that. The one that they liked. And then, and then the number came up and I think it was $3 million. He's like, we, it was on the PowerPoint. It was like, he's like, we were willing to pay $3 million for your company. And, and so then it became a discussion. And so I was like, Oh, and so I was like, I was like, what do I do now? Do I say my number? And then I think I said, I was like, well, the number, He's like, I think maybe he said, is there a number that you'd be happy with? And I said, we had that 2 million number in our head, the 6 million number, which was like what we were shooting for. And then 10 million was the number. It's like, if they say 10 million, I'm just going to say yes. And <laughs> yes. say instantly. And so I was like, I was like, well, 10 million is the number. If you offered that, um, you know, you know, we would like say yes without negotiating. And then he's like, do you have like, I don't know, I forget it. He's like, do you have like a more reasonable number? I was like, do I just give all my numbers? And then I said, I was like, you know, the number that we were really shooting for that we'd be happy with this is 6 million, which is like double his number. And so he had like a little small notebook in front of him and he wrote down six on his notebook and that meant 6 million. And wow. I was like, I was like, you're going to forget that. I don't know what. And then he's like, he's like, that's not crazy. That's like a reasonable price. Like yeah. you guys are running a great company. And then he kind of went into some other stuff because they're actually going public two months later and they had like accounting things they had to worry about with like not making this too big of a deal because it becomes material or whatever. Um, and then, uh, I don't know. Then he said, would you do five or something? And I was like, I was like, yeah, <laughs> let's do that. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And I, I, thanks for telling that story. Cause yeah, there's a lot of secrecy and then people are nervous because it's very rare that you sit at that table and do the negotiation, right? Yeah. Like you, you haven't done that since you never did it before. And yeah, you don't know what you're supposed to do. And I like, you were just like, ah, like he, here, here's what we could do. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. No, it was awkward. Cause I'm like, what do you say? Or do you say like, yeah. I like thought about the numbers, but I didn't like really go through like how I was going to present them. Like, here's our number. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. And it's like you're a, <clears throat> a car salesman. You're like, yeah, I'm going to go talk to my manager. And you took a piss and uh, grabbed some uh, drinks. And you're like, ah, oh, we'll, we'll come back in a minute. And then know, big time with the CEO of this like about to go public company. That's awesome. I, Very cool. I, I think that bathroom stunt probably got you some more money. So if anyone negotiates to buy a mile high five, we, we should pull the same shit. Like you'll go and then I'll have to go and then you'll yeah. have to go again. You can blame it on yeah, like yeah. Mexican food the night before, Taco Bell, something like that. We could, uh, we, we did this at Camp Fi. We were, uh, we accidentally, we went to the bathroom uh, at the same time often and we took uh, selfies at the urinal. And uh, you could text it to whoever we're negotiating with. We're like, we don't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was way, you had to be there. I, I don't know. Yeah, you did have to be there. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you know. Well, I'll send you the picture. Okay, yeah. Okay. It's not creepy. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've seen them on some of uh, the dark web forums, the dark web fly forums. I, uh, I frequent. All right. Uh, Carl, anything else with the 
No, I think that's it. We want to talk about what happened next. You took a year off after you sold. What did you do during that year? So I worked for two years. And so just for some numbers, because I assume people like numbers, the, the, the final sale price ended up being a little more than $5 million. Like They actually offered a little bit less than we, than we like our lawyers were like, oh, because you're offering less, like we have, or they, they pushed the purchase price back, and so we got more, whatever. So it was like $5.05 million. 70% of that was mine, which is around $3 million. And then you know the years that I got paid out, which was like the first and second year, I paid about a million dollars in taxes because I was living in California. Um, a lot of it was long-term capital grains, and so I basically ended up paying 33% taxes on this $3 million, and so I had $2 million in my pay account. Um, so a lot of people think you sell for $5 million, you have $5 million in your checking account afterwards, and I had, that wasn't true, I had two. Uh, luckily, we didn't have like tons of investors that had got to get paid out, all that stuff, but um, it wasn't bad. So yeah, I, I worked for that company for two more years, and so I had this other vision of like, oh, once I sell, I'm going to be like jetting off to Fiji and just like on a beach and just like, you know, riding off in the sunset or whatever but that didn't happen because that suddenly like i had these bosses who had just given me millions of dollars who very much wanted this like new shiny toy they just bought to like do the thing they wanted to do which is like be integrated into their software and so and they gave me like budget and they're like hire more people and you know you now you're like this middle manager in this like big company so i worked there for two years um and then i left and then i took that year off and did nothing. I played video games. I traveled. I actually, you know, a few days after I quit, I flew to Italy and I coached beach volleyball for two months in Italy, which is something that I had always wanted to do but could never do because I was a grown up and I couldn't leave my job for two <laughs> months till I, um, and so I got to be like, you know, I was trying. I was, I was kind of like living my twenties that I missed as like the entrepreneur, like getting some of that stuff in. Yeah, nice. Did um, so you're like a competitive volleyball player too. Yeah, actually, after track ended and I realized I would never be as fast as I used to be, I switched to, to beach volleyball as my main sport, and that's why I moved to San Diego. Um, you know, I'm good. Like, Olympians would just annihilate me, but, you know, I would annihilate the, you know, family reunion barbecue ball or whatever. Sure. Um, Man, this guy does it all. <laughs> I know, right? Volleyball, do you speak Italian too? Uh, at the time, I knew enough to, you know, go to the store and stuff but now it okay. would be embarrassing to even say a word <laughs> <laughs> that's cool that's there was cool. a moment where i was staying in an airbnb where the woman she only spoke like croatian german and italian but no english and i only spoke english and like italian was like my third best behind spanish but we actually spoke in italian like that i was like so proud that like our common language that had the best chance right. was italian wow that's but, yeah, cool i don't actually i'm not good at language so at that point you you hit phi I, I take it is that like the delineation point when you sold the company yeah you know there's an article like a track article from college where i was talking about retiring at 25 it's like literally like on paper huh. i still have like the digital image of it and and i i don't remember when i heard about phi or fire and i think it was probably after i sold the company and maybe even later um and so there's part of me who always kind of like wanted to do this, but didn't, I, I never had the context for it until like the fire movement. Um, and so, yeah, I basically quit my job two years later when I realized like my investments were going up faster than my salary was paying me. And so, you know, I'm like, and the salary was paying me more than it ever, like, you know, it was paying me like five times more than it, I'd, I'd ever made in my life before. And so I was making like $150,000 a year or something. And my investments were going up, you know, 2 million bucks, 10% a year or whatever was going up, 
you know, 200 or $250,000 a year. And I'm like, oh. And so my net worth had grown to like 2.8 million or so over the next two years. And then, yeah, I, I quit and figured that I probably didn't ever need to work again. Gotcha. And then you spent 12 years building the company. It was your baby. You were working with your mom and, uh, you know, tight team. Did you hit like a point of depression or any downtime once you sold it and you stopped working and uh, during the year you played video games and all that stuff? Any downtimes? Um, you know, I don't think there was a lot more or less depression than any other time. I don't think there's like a really dark time for me or anything. I think the biggest thing that I realized was that I hit more of like an existential crisis where it was my identity. You know, like when people ask what you do, I'm a kid that started a company in college and I'm growing it. And I'm going to sell it one day or whatever, you know? Um, and then when people ask what I do, I'm like, I did something cool two years ago or three years ago. It's like getting further and further in the rear view mirror. I'm like, what am I about now? Um, and you know, I think a lot of people see money as like the primary tension in their life. They're like, like, Oh, if I could get a nicer house or a nicer car or get the next, next bigger upgrade or whatever, they're like, then I'd be happy. And, and I basically found peace. Cause I went from being like, so living so frugally to having so much that I found peace with like, I'm like comfortable with this lifestyle. I could do this forever. And money was no longer this tension in my life. And I found like emptiness there. I'm like, well, what, what am I doing? I'm like, what, what am I striving for? I didn't want to be like, you know, I thought about just traveling people. I say, Oh, travel, you know, I thought about just traveling. I was like, what am I be 70 years old? And people like, like tell me all your life. I was like, well, I sold a company in my thirties and I've been a piece of shit since then, you know, <laughs> I've been like a dirt bag traveling. You know, like, like if, if you're traveling with no, just for like hedonic yeah. vacation reasons or whatever, you know? And so I, that's actually why I started personal finance club because I was like, I want to like reach a goal. I want to build something. I want to work towards something. And it's not no longer like just a financial thing. I was like, I need this much money. It's like, it's like, I want to help people. I want to build something. Nice. Uh, before we get into personal finance club, did you do anything crazy after that two million hit your bank account? Did you buy anything or go out to dinner? Or? Uh, nothing really crazy. You know, I did take my whole team out to like one of the more expensive places in San Diego, and we like got a private room. And you know, the most expensive dinner I'd ever bought before was like eighty dollars or something like that. You know, I would never go out to expensive places I could afford it, um, and that bill was like, you know. Two thousand dollars, something like that. So I mean, that was like yeah. an insane moment to see, like a two thousand, you know, like because it's, it's still like shocking to you because when that money hits your bank account, it's like it, for me, it took probably several years to sink in, like what that number meant. You know, like you hear the word million, but it's like hard to conceptualize, like like you know, is two thousand still a lot of money or whatever. Obviously, like I know how math works, and two thousand less than two million or whatever, but still, it was like a shocking moment. I also threw a a party for all my friends. I, I knew when the close date was. And so I like invited all my friends over under the guise of it being a housewarming party, despite having not moved in the last six years, I lived in a <laughs> garage converted to apartment. Um, and I like had a, uh, mobile, uh, stone fired pizza truck come and like make, you know, pizzas and salads for everyone and had like, you know, 30 friends come over and I was like, yeah, I sold my company. So those were like the only crazy things I did. I still drove my 99 Ford Explorer for like another year before I finally had to buy a car. <laughs> That's pretty fun. Okay, so oh, personal finance club. Now? Yeah, yeah, tell us yeah. how personal finance club came to be. Yeah, so it was that like existential crisis. Like, what am I about? And and I actually was like having 
like lunch or dinner with uh, now like a girlfriend of mine at the time. And, and she's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I, I would love to like help people learn about personal finance, like host like a show on Netflix or a podcast or something like that. And, and we we're both like, that's not crazy. Like, you know, my, I was a computer programmer. I'd never had any sort of like public persona. I'd never made content. I'd never, but it still wasn't crazy. Like there's no reason that it couldn't be me. And so, um, I was like, all right, I'm somebody going to be a personal finance content creator, which I didn't really even know the name for it. I didn't know FinCon existed. I, I, I knew of like Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman. And I thought that was like it. And then now there's like an entire conference of us here that do this. And so that's kind of wild. But yeah, I, I decided to start an Instagram account because I thought that was where like most of the millennials were that, you know, maybe needed this type of help. And I set a goal of getting 50,000 followers in the first year. I was like, I was like, I don't have a job. I can just like, I barely had an Instagram account before that. Didn't know how any social media stuff worked. I was like, I'm just going to figure it out. Um, and that was the beginning. What is Personal Finance Club? Uh, it's... I don't ask, man, I should be stumbling over this answer. <laughs> I mean, in very practical terms, it's me and my two coworkers now, Vivian and Shane, who make content to basically help people learn about the basics of personal finance and investing. And so, you know, the dream is if a random 20 or 30 or 40 something is out at a cocktail party and they say, you know, wait, what is investing? What is a Roth IRA? Like, how do I do this? which is a very confusing, intimidating space for a lot of people. I want their friend to be like, oh, just go to Personal Finance Club because it's this altruistic, no BS, no sellout source that's like simplifies things and walks through with these like regular, normally very intimidating and complex topics of, of investing. Awesome. And did you hit the 50K um, followers like you? No, I failed at that, um, but I did hit it in like 12 and a half months. So it was actually very eerily wow. close. I was trying to hit it by the end of uh, 2019. I think I hit it in like mid-January of 2020. Did you, it sounds like you didn't have like a ton of experience in the social media area. Any big challenges like growing? Was it just fun learning and all that? Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, yeah, never like our social media for my previous business was terrible. It's not how we, you know, we were mostly like SEO and word of mouth and conferences and stuff for our marketing. Um, and so I just learned, you know, I like, I bought some eBooks. I looked at what other people are doing. I, you know, and, and I, I fancy myself an entrepreneur sometimes, not the most successful one in the world, but you know, I'm not terrible at it. And one of the things that I talk about is looking at, there's two types of metrics you can look at when you're like tracking something lead metrics and lag metrics. And I always like give this pitch to like other entrepreneurs and everyone always focuses on the lag metric and a lag metric is basically the thing, the thing you want to have happen. So for me it was followers, you know, I want followers, but the problem with tracking lag metrics is you can't directly act on that. Like I can't get a follower. That's not like an action I can take. Um, you know, and same with like company revenue or something. You can't like earn a dollar. You have to do other things, which will lead to that. And so this challenge for entrepreneurs is like identifying the things that you can do that are directly influenceable, that like you can act on them, and that they're like, you know, highly correlated or predictive to the, the lag metric. And so, and then that focuses on like, okay, this is what you should actually be doing. And so with Instagram, I like made a spreadsheet. And I said, all right, the lead, the lead metrics are how often I'm like, how many times I'm posting, how many stories I'm making and how many times I'm commenting on other people's posts. And 
because when you comment someone else's post on Instagram, you create a link from their post to your account. And if you do that like 10 times a day, then a month later in the Instagram ecosystem, there are 300 links out there that post to your account. And so I just started cranking on these numbers. And then, you know, I wasn't spamming. This isn't, a, this isn't a like tracking these numbers isn't an excuse to not create good content. But, you know, I was just purposely going out to other Instagram accounts that I liked and trying to like leave funny or helpful or insightful comments um, as often as I could. I was making sure to post more often. I was making sure to post stories more often. And then as soon as I did that, the numbers were low. I was like in a hundred or 200 followers. And as soon as I started cranking, you know, things started going better. It didn't instantly happen, but it is correlated and, you know, predictive. And so then I got a thousand followers and 5,000 followers. Then it kept going up. Awesome. Yeah. I love that, um, explanation of the lead and lag and, uh, another way to think of it too, I think, and you could correct me, Jeremy, if I'm missing it, but just systems versus goals, you know, figure out the goal and then back into the system and then do that. And then hopefully the goal comes out. Yeah, totally. And I think that a lot of people get so focused on the goal. You, there's no context for what, where the work is getting put in then, you know, and having yeah. that system to be like, okay, here's like what you go through. And then it leads to the goal. I think it makes a big difference. How does personal finance club make money? We didn't for a long time. Uh, when I, set out to do this. My goal was to get 50,000 followers, not to make money. Um, and then it was actually in October of 2020 when I was bored during the pandemic where I basically started a company by mistake, as I say, because it was never the intent to start a big company. And if I was, I wouldn't start this company because I don't think it's like a horrific business model. Um, but I was getting, you know, at that time I had, I think I had like 90,000 followers and I was getting the same questions over and over and over, which is what is a Roth IRA? Which stocks should I pick? Is it a good time to invest? You know, and they're all perfectly reasonable questions. And every time someone asks, I'm like, I desperately want to tell you the answer to this because I, I know and I can really help. Um, and I often would in DMs. I still do. I still try to at least. Um, but I was like, I should just make like an A to Z video course that just like walks through. It's like, okay, here's, here's what a stock is. Here's what a bond is. Here's what a mutual fund is. Here's what an index fund is. And so I made this course and my initial instinct was just to give it away for free because that's what I was doing with everything else. Um, and then I thought about it and I was like, all right, the problem is people don't value free. If you just like send them a link to a free course, they're not going to take it. They're not going to finish it. Um, also I was like, I'd, I'd gone to my first FinCon by that point, And so, and I had like a website now and I was like losing a little bit of money every month. It wasn't a big deal, but I was like, it'd be nice to like cover my expenses at least. And I was like, it, all, it would also be nice to maybe like be able to have some revenue to like grow more content. Um, and so I decided to sell the course. I chose a price of $79, which included unlimited lifetime access. And then I decided to sell it as like a first, you know, your early bird special or whatever for $49. And so I did a week sale in October of 2020. And I sold this course for $49. And in the, in the week we sold $110,000 worth of this course. And wow. I was like, Oh, it took me huh. three years cumulatively to make, or maybe four years cumulatively to make $110,000 at my first company. I hasn't made it in a week. I was like, oh, maybe this is a, maybe this is a real thing. Wow. That's pretty cool. And we are, uh, we're affiliates for, for the course. So we'll, we'll put a link out for that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, awesome. awesome. Oh yeah. yeah v, you said that when the Vivi was on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll link up. It's a good course. Yeah. We shouldn't, do we know like the, the coupon code they can use? Uh, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. So we'll check anything. the show notes for the coupon code. 
yeah. I bet it's twenty dollars off. So we've never. Okay. I promised my my followers I would never sell it for forty nine dollars again. And I've stuck that promise, but but you guys can get it for fifty nine dollars. So cool. That's the lowest. All right. Nice, awesome. Yeah, you want to hit the principles here? Yeah, I'm going to read. So there, there's ten principles on Personal Finance Club. I'd like to read them real quick, or Jeremy could read them and then talk about um, three of them briefly. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you want to read them, or do you want me to read them? Uh, I'll read them. Okay, great. I've, oh, I've got, got them I, here. here. Uh, so the first two is are the ones that we basically harp on. In every single post, if you ever see one of my Instagram posts, I like end my caption with this. And they are, number one, live below your means. And number two, invest early and often. So, you know, in fact, I was speaking, we're sharing this hotel. Do you guys know about the other conference here? Uh, it's some kind of marketing thing, I think. I got in there a registration line by accident. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I was speaking to some of the attendees last night who were kind of came at me a little, not aggressively, but like ambitiously. And I found out later it's because like they'd ask someone else who's the richest person here sign like that. And then they came <laughs> at me. And so that, like I eventually learned that they were, um, that it's a multi-level marketing company and you know, I am famously against them. I think it's an, uh, immoral business model. I think it takes advantage of people. Um, and, but I was telling these fine women of this multi-level marketing company that there's they basically said how do you get rich and i said you gotta do these two things you gotta spend less money than you make and you have to invest the difference that that's the end of it if you make five hundred thousand dollars a year and you spend five hundred thousand dollars a year you're broke that's zero you know and and i think people often you know it's maybe in the five community we're so familiar with that but i think in like pop culture people think wealth is like balling out with a new car and getting rims and, you know, buying shots at the club and living in big houses or whatever. But that's not wealth. That's spending. Wealth is what you have after the spending. So you have to spend less than you make and then you have to invest a difference. And investing is important because savings not enough. If you just save money, um, you'll, you'll, you'll never outpace inflation. You'll never like build serious wealth. You have to, you have to invest. So those are the first two rules. Okay, and then rule number three is avoid debt. And my question for that is, do you think all debt is bad? Uh, a lot of people in the fire community argue about whether or not you should pay off a mortgage, for example. And right now, I'm very happy I didn't pay mine because it's like 2.75. And what's a mortgage now, like six? Yeah. I don't know. No, honestly, like, you know, at this moment in time, we're in mid-2020 year. I'm like, yeah, maybe I should have got a mortgage in 2019 and yeah. or whatever. Um, you know, at, at its core, like, let me ask you this. If you're... If your house could be paid for in full, not with the rest of your finances, if it could be paid for in full, or you could have this mortgage, and the rest of your finances are the same, which would you choose? Um, well, we we actually paid cash for our house and then did a cash out refi oh, and you? invested the rest. Um, I'm not sure if that answered your, your question or not. Okay. Um, I was hoping to say you would prefer to have it paid in full <laughs> because yeah. you know I, I, I mean the implication of course is like someone's like gifting you the money or something to pay off your mortgage and so as most core you know debt is bad like you don't want to owe someone money and you don't have to pay interest that said and i only i only start with that because sometimes you talk to people who are like very new to finance and think that debt may be as good like if they have more they would if they take more they would have more and generally you know you'd rather just have cash than have no cash and have debt right. um, but that said you know, credit card debt is bad, you know, medical debt, you know, personal debt, auto debt, I think is bad. I would never borrow money for a car, but you know, real estate debt, things that are appreciating assets can certainly be used as a tool. And there are a lot of very wealthy people who go and buy investment real estate using loans. 
and you know go from one to the next and build a massive you know portfolio that way and so i'd say you know debt in general you don't want debt it can be a tool but even as a tool it's you get in the world of risk because it can be a risky tool i've definitely talked to people who go too aggressive borrow too much money and then lose all their money they lose everything they borrow they lose all the money they had before um so that's you gotta be careful with that cool yeah i heard a animal spirits podcast michael batnick who's a advisor i think it and he was saying he wouldn't do what i just described that i did because he wouldn't be able to control himself with the money he wouldn't invest it he would just go out and spend it which kind of surprised me but <laughs> really yeah. yeah right if you're borrowing money to spend that's not good math you know it's it, it can only use this as a tool if you're using it to actually buy something is likely to go up in value and you know pay income okay yeah. let's read the last seven and you can comment on these as you read them if you'd like yeah, rule number four, invest in index funds. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, day trading, crypto, options. Uh, there's a million things. You know, don't do any of those things. Just invest in index funds. It's buying the companies of the world. You listen to Warren Buffett or Jack Bogle or um, J.L. Collins, the, uh, the author of Simple Path to Wealth. And there's like, it's very simple. All that stuff is just noise. It's part of the financial services world that's designed to make them money, not to make you money. It's just you buy the companies of the world at a very low cost, broadly diversified. That is that is how you invest. So that's why I buy index funds. Okay. Uh, rule five is buy and hold. Um, again, I think that people overcomplicate investing. And so they think, you know, I did a, on the flight here yesterday, I did a Q&A in my Instagram stories. And these are people who follow me. They like, they know my system and still like 90% of the questions are like, what should I do? Is the market about to crash? Should I get in, should I get in or out? Uh, do you believe Michael Burry's predictions? Do you think the global uh, reserve currency is going to change from the US? Like, you know, there's all this like macroeconomic speculation and, and people think they should be like making moves. And it's like, uh, it's like a natural human tendency to want to use your brain to do better. But with investing, you know, buying and holding just for years. In fact, like that's my rule is like never sell anything until you retire. And then when you retire, just sell a little bit at a time. Um, Warren Buffett says his favorite holding period is forever. Um, you know, my <laughs> friends who are trying to decide whether or not to like sell their real estate is like, if you hold it forever, you will be very wealthy. You know, just buy the next one, buy the next one. And so I think the mentality for investing shouldn't be trading, getting in, getting out. It should just be acquiring. You know, you, you, you know, it's ramping up, you know, you buy your first ETF, you buy your first index fund, you buy more, you buy more, you buy your first rental property, you buy more and more and just keep acquiring. And then you get this massive snowball rolling where you can just live off the, the growth forever. Next, number six, minimize fees. And so in investing, at least investing in the stock market, there's very little you can do to predictively improve your uh, investing performance. You can't, you know, pick better stocks. You can't uh, pick better managers, better mutual funds. Uh, you know, there's like one study I liked that um, looked at 12 different features of a mutual fund, like the manager tenure, the past performance, the CAPE ratio, the Morningstar rating, um, all this stuff about these mutual funds and found that 11 of the 12 had no correlation to future performance. <laughs> and one had a correlation, which is the fees. The lower the fees, the better the, the fund performed. And so whether it's real estate, whether it's uh, index funds, whether it's getting a 
financial advisor or not, um, you know, anything in this world, the thing that you can do to pr proactively and predictively improve your own investment performance is just to minimize fees. Cool. Number, where are we at? Seven, I think. Yep. Uh, be cautious of misaligned incentives. You put a note on this one. What is this? <laughs> um, so I think when people get into trouble with money, it's because someone is trying to sell them something that they have a different incentive than the investor. And so, you know, an example that is coming up a lot these days is um, insurance being sold as an investment. And so if you are on TikTok or um, Instagram to some degree, there are these insurance salesmen who are pushing this, this like crazy narrative that young people should be buying these expensive insurance policy, life insurance policies as this fantastic investment. And they just like go on and on about like the amazing um, benefits. And, you know, we can, I can, we can do a whole podcast about that. But at the end of the day, the reason that they're doing that is not because it's true. It's because they earn a very healthy commission. Um, and so every policy they sell, they get like a year's worth of, you know, it just turns out these things are so profitable that the insurance companies have set up this like really kind of sick incentive for these insurance salesmen to just go out and collect these massive insurance, these massive um, commissions. And so whether it's insurance or even um, some financial advisor models, you know, there's different financial advisors models. Some have an incentive when they trade, they make money or when, um, when you put money in, they make money. And so you just have to think about like, if, if why is this, per, why and how is this person making money and what is their incentive to do so? Mm -hmm. And if it's just to sell this product, uh, maybe that's not good. You know, the financial advisor model like might be the best is, you know, a percent of assets under management. So at least, you know, they're making more money as you're making more wealth or you could just pay them for their time, which is a fixed fee. So at least they're just incentivized to like, you know, provide you a good service so they make their hourly money or whatever. But yeah, in any time in life, think about if this person has like a very different incentive than you yeah. do um, because it probably, they might not be acting in your best interest. Cool. Number eight. Oh, avoid mixing investing and insurance. Um, oh, we kind of just covered yeah. that, but um, you know, it, it just comes up so much. I had to put it as a rule because every, you know, and when it happens, it just is kind of like devastating to people's finances, you know? Um, yeah. That same, that same girlfriend of mine who asked me what I want to be when I grew up, she was a teacher and she taught for 15 years or something. And so she was 35. And she, when she was in her early twenties, some insurance salesman came to her school and said, this is how you prepare for retirement. You buy this annuity. And she had for 15 years through, you know, from whatever, through the great 2010s run up yeah. of the market and all this, she had been putting money as insurance policy. And after 15 years, her value was, I think, just slightly less than what she put in. So, you know, she had, she had yeah. put in, you know, whatever, 20 or $30,000 and it was worth just under that. Yeah. And I was like, if you had invested that, it would have doubled probably three times. You would have had, you know, 30, 60, $120,000. Yeah. And so this teacher, this public school teacher, got basically duped by an insurance salesman. And so, you know, that stuff makes my blood boil. Yeah. And I, I have one of those <clears throat> same exact deal, early 20s, uh, warm introduction. And I won't say the company, but it rhymes with Borth, Borth Western Mutual. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. Very close rhyme. yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
fumbled that one a little bit, but yeah, yeah. It took me a little while to figure it out, but same rough time oh, you, period. This is about you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. so yeah, because yeah, uh, you know you don't know, and I, luckily I had four hundred one k and other stuff going yeah. on. But yeah, a good chunk of money that I just eventually we like. I was like, oh, fuck those guys. We fired them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you don't know what you don't know, and then once I figured totally. it out. It it's it's i know it's sad I, I mean it's one of those i feel like injustices in the world where it's like why isn't this policed you know why aren't we doing something about this and just like there's shades of gray and you know and what they're doing isn't i don't know like maybe it's not totally nefarious like they're providing the product that they say are they going to provide but it's just so you know predatory because it's like not what people should be doing and you know and everyone actually I have 400,000 followers now. I actually reached out to them and said, has anybody, is anybody happy with their whole life insurance? Like, please yeah. tell me your story. I want to like hear it. And one guy wrote back and he's like, he's like, yeah, I bought a bunch of policies. I've been paying them for 20 years. And now they're worth like $200,000 or something. Like I'm like, they're, they're great for me. And so I looked at his policies and I, like, you know, I just like, I was like, if you had just bought a, a random mutual fund with the same money, you'd have like 900,000. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I don't think he really wanted to hear it. I don't think he like was convinced or whatever. Cause like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow when you're like, Oh, oops. Um, but so even the people were happy, like, and, but he was the one that responded. Like everyone else I talked to was like, you, they, they look at it 15 or 20 years later and they're like, Oh, I just got annihilated by fees for 20 years and I would have been better off in a savings account or whatever. Yeah. Number nine, simple is better than complex. Um, this kind of goes back to, index funds, options, insurance, whatever, you know, these whole life insurance policies are not simple. They're insanely complex. And that complexity is, does not favor the investor. You know, those rules, those like web of rules are set up for the insurance company. And so whenever you're dealing with your finances, simple, simple is better than complex. In fact, you asked me earlier, like, why do you do the syndicate real estate stuff? And my answer was like, because I'm not a better man. If I was, <laughs> I would have like, I would have yeah. put it all in a single mutual fund because I think I would actually be better off. Yeah. In fact, when I sold my company, I, um, you know, did all my homework. I, I tried to like, I read books on investing. I tried to do it all right. And I just came, I decided that I landed on ETFs. I was like, all right, I'm investing in ETFs, which is great by the way. Um, and I, I landed on seven ETFs. I was like, I'm going to buy, you know, large cap us small cap us international emerging markets bonds real estate commodities like something like that um you know now what was what is it seven years later i went back and did a backward test of that portfolio versus a single target date index fund my favorite way to invest which is just like a combo pack of index funds and the the the, the target date index outperformed so like my research my cleverness my tax efficiency my all you know all this stuff a simple target date index fund like the simplest way to invest actually outperformed so simple is better than complex all right and number 10 is do the right thing um you know i just think that's like a matter of integrity a matter of morality i just think that i i believe nice guys finish first not last i think that you sleep better i think that your life is better um i think that people who <laughs> what, are you, what are you watching uh are we boring you what's going on over there carl picked up his phone for the people on the podcast no, he's I'm watching tiktok to. videos yeah yeah there. i'm trying to tell our next interviewee that we might we're running a little bit oh late. sorry we're going over. no no it's all good yeah this is good yeah yeah so do the right thing good guys finish first yeah you, um yeah. you know for example i just came across an account the other day that was taking all of my posts 
cropping off my logo and and representing it as their own work and then and then selling a course for you know hundreds of dollars more than than my course sells for um and and then if you like google this course that's like it's on like all these scam websites and it says got an f on the better business bureau and all this stuff and um you know i don't think that person's doing the right thing i think that they're taking shortcuts i think that they're being sleazy about it. and i you know like i'm going to be more successful than that person i'm 100 percent sure of it and i think that if they did the work and you know sought to help people primarily and you know give value i think that they would be better off and i think by not doing the right thing and i also don't think you know when i i emailed this person i said hey i noticed you're using all my content can you please take it down and like let me know um and then they didn't um i dm them they ignored me and i finally you know this one was like so egregious and i normally don't do this and people steal my content all day every day so like i normally don't let it get to me but this one i just for some reason like rubbed me the wrong way um i finally like put him on blast with my followers i was like i was like hey does anyone know because because he's like he's a member of this f- financial community he's like he's like on social media he's like a real american person who really? who is out there and like has some shared followers and things like that i was like it's like does anyone know this guy who's like you know clearly just like ripping me off and selling a course um and then you know then you know i, I didn't try to like send them out at him but i'm sure some of my followers were like commenting on his stuff or whatever and then he like deleted all my stuff and then blocked me i was like all right real way to you know way to own up to your mistake or whatever um Man, so that's crazy yeah. i did get a dm from you and you were asking me how i'm investing in crypto and you had a suggestion for an nft yeah no so, yeah i hope you sent you send that bitcoin that address i sent you uh, <laughs> yeah it's crazy all the scammer dude instagram out. is overrun right now it's so it's so frustrating because we I literally employ people and I'm like, this is your job, like fight the scammers. And, and they're just, they overrun, you know, and you know, there's a joke. I did not DM Doug and ask him for crypto, but people impersonate my account. They copy my username. And does does it happen to you guys too? Like happens to a lot of, uh, no, I'm very small. I would be, uh, I'd be very lucky if people were trying to copy my, my stuff. (laughs) Sometimes people are flattered the first time it happens. I mean, they, they go after big and small accounts, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, it's frustrating because a lot of times they're, they're like dragging my name for the mug and, yeah. and, and some people don't. And someone, someone messaged me the other day. And I was like, how come you followed and unfollowed me? Like you're just doing that sleazy thing to get followers. I was like, I was like, I did not like, we have, we follow like 200 accounts. They're all people I personally know. Um, you can look at it. And she's like, no, you did. I was like, I was like, I'm pretty sure it's a scammer. She's like, no, it's this account. I was like, I know you think that, but you just thought it was cause it's a very similar looking username, but it's like off by one letter. Um, so, you know, it just sucks that it's like hurting my reputation, you know? Yeah. Okay. To finish this section up, uh, what what do you think is the number one mistake people make with money? What what do you hear about from your community? We have a knock on the door. Should we pause? Is that your, is that your 11 o'clock? We'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep rolling. We'll let Cody just sit in here, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I know Cody. Yeah, yeah. So what's up, Cody? <laughs> we, no, no, it's all good. No, no, it's it's all good. We're we're gonna keep rolling. We don't edit much. So if you wanna, you just sit on the bed or chill. It is on. Yeah, you're you're on YouTube right now. Uh, I mean, we're recording it, but uh, yeah, we'll just wrap it up and yeah, we're talking to Cody next, everyone. So, all right. I know. Great segue. Uh, number one mistake people make with money. I, you know, I, I hate to harp on it, but I think it's just living beyond your means. I think people get sucked up into the capitalistic, materialistic stuff is going to make you happy 
American and maybe global mentality and buy a car and a loan and go on a fancy trip instead of a modest trip and, you know, buy too much house. And, um, you know, I want people to live their best life, but if you're stressed because you can't make payments and all your shit, like you're not happier now, you're less happy, you're not less happy now. And you're going to be even less happy when, you know, you still are slaving away at a job when you're 70 because, you know, you've lived your whole life trying to like keep up with your stuff. Yeah. Did you pay cash for your helicopter dog or, or did you finance it? I finance. Yeah. Oh, shit. Good interest rate. Shit. Yeah. yeah. The other rule of finance is, is rent. Don't buy anything that floats, flies, or fucks. So you should have definitely rented that Wait, helicopter. Say, 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 please repeat that. It's, I don't know. Like, I definitely didn't make this up. I thought this was like relatively common knowledge, but it's, it's rent. Don't buy anything that floats, flies, or fucks. Um, so, you know, don't buy a yacht, don't buy a plane. And I assume the third one is like, don't get married or make use of prostitutes. I don't know really what that, what that means. Yeah. Well, this is a, we'll have to look that up later. I think it's this is deep. Yeah. Well, you said it's on the podcast. So I had to go in. <laughs> And, and I, uh, we, we do have a few more questions, but since we are going over, maybe we can get you for a round two for some stuff. But I, I do want to ask you, what's your perfect day look like? Um, I saw that question ahead of time, and I, I don't think I adequately prepared. But I don't know. It's probably traveling. It's probably discovering something like a new restaurant, doing something active, paddleboarding, getting a good workout in, like having a great meal with drinks, with friends laughing, um, being outside, not staring at my phone too much, which is not what I do on almost every other day of my life. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, those are the days that I look back on in my life and remember, and they're also, I mean, traveling obviously costs money, but you can do it frugally, but, um, they're also not things, you know, I didn't say flying a helicopter or whatever. It's things that, you know, a bottle of two buck chuck and like laughing with friends is like almost free. And is like, you know, is, is the best. Yeah. Very cool. Cool. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic and really fun. Where can people find you? Thanks for having me, guys. This has been a blast. I'm, I love doing the, I, I feel like I've only been a child of the pandemic in uh, creator world. So it's nice to like do this face to face. Yeah. Personal Finance Club. I'm wearing the T-shirt if you're looking on YouTube. PersonalFinanceClub.com. Instagram is where we have the most followers at Personal Finance Club, TikTok, and we're going to get bigger on YouTube one of these days. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link up for all the stuff in the show notes so people can find it easy. And like we said, uh, the, the course, we'll link up to that and make sure the coupon code or whatever is appropriate is in there. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Thanks man. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington the balder host and carl jensen is the cool sexy one if you dig the show please do three things for us number one tell a friend a family member an enemy about the show we really don't care who you tell maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like it's the single most helpful thing that you could do to spread the word it's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in in person so the virtual kind's pretty good and more importantly your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them number two make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app apple podcast spotify overcast youtube whatever you're using and that way you won't miss a show 
And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. All right. So we're here at uh, FinCon. Jeremy, what were you up to last night? Uh, there is the opening party. I think, at least when I'm at a conference, I always lose my voice because in my normal day, I'm sitting in front of a computer by myself, not speaking for 24 hours. And so I think it's like a sick prank they play on all of us nerds is to cram us in like a very hard-walled, small box, crank the music all the way up to 10, and just have people shouting at each other the first night of a conference to, uh, so we like lose our voices right off the bat. Immediately. Yeah. I was very nervous that I wouldn't even be able to talk today. And I, I tried because I know that trick that yeah. they're doing to us and I tried not to talk too much, but still, yeah. Like I, I, I mean, I, I talk a decent amount, but I usually don't scream. Yeah. I refuse to go hang on side. I was like, whenever I get a drink and if someone tried talking, to me, I was like, let's talk outside. Cause I'm not shouting over this music. Yeah. So not fun at all, but whatever. Actually I had a lot more fun outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How's it going with you? What's your voice like, Carl? Did you make it through? Uh, my voice is okay. I kind of, usually when I'm at these things, I try to be conscious, knowing that we have to record. And like what Jeremy said, they throw this thing on there the first night. And uh, there was one FinCon, actually, a couple of years ago that we went. And it was actually my own event, but it was very loud. We had the beer party and a bunch of people showed up. But yeah, it ended at 4 a.m. And the next day... I was supposed to record with the Mad Scientist and for the Plane with Fire documentary. So at 4 a.m., we're like, hey, we should try to find more beer. And luckily, we could not find more beer, which was great. <laughs> but, yeah, the next day, I woke up at like 8.30, four hours later, and I'm like, uh. And then I tried to talk, and my voice didn't work. I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. But then it magically came back like three hours later. I still didn't feel great, but my voice worked. That is rough. Yeah, it was a bad day. In that in that podcast episode, is it on like uh, Brandon's feed? Like you can get it. It is. Yeah, we interviewed physician on fire, Leaf, who we just interviewed as yeah. well. And Mindy did a rap at the end to hypnotize by Biggie Smalls, <laughs> only with words. I rewrote it for Leaf, so it's pretty oh, really? awesome. Oh man, I'll, yeah, I'll have to check that out. And I, I wonder, do you guys have ideas for a better opening party for like old guys? Because I now bring earplugs and stuff because I my hearing I don't want it to uh, like be damaged anymore by standing in front of speakers that are so loud or whatever. But yeah, what, what's your ideal like old old dude party? <laughs> I think the organizers have to have the confidence not to try to throw a rager. You know, I, I think that like they get the DJ and then, and like nobody wants or maybe like two people want that, and but most of us want to have like you know hors d'oeuvres small tables mingling standing up you know yeah. like i mean i think that's like the magic of these things is like the opportunity to like bump into people and see people you know yeah. online or whatever and but no i don't think anyone gets here the first night it's like i just really need to dance it out like you know like, <laughs> uh, at least that's my perspective so but you know there are parties like they can have like cocktail hours things like that without you know right big dj so yeah yeah, what do you think, Carl? Yeah, I saw that they had a dance floor at the place, right? But I never saw anyone up there. I mean, this is money, people. We don't do that. <laughs> no. 
Not, not many of us. Yeah. And I think uh, I, I like the idea. I mean, they really could have just got a bunch of pizzas and threw us in the one of the big rooms and we would have been yeah. super happy. Yeah, I also don't know why we would have drive like 25 minutes to go to that like high school gym or whatever we were in. <laughs> I mean, I, mean you know, I, I don't mean to like talk shit about yeah. the, the um, FinCon organizers because it's like a massive undertaking. I don't think it's like extremely profitable or anything. And so like I know they have a lot to do, but I yeah. think they could probably even make it easier on themselves by just like what you said, like get a room here get some you know yeah. easy food and like i think we all enjoy it yeah totally yeah and, and maybe like one alternative is just uh like walking walking around uh it was well, hot here that's the other thing it's, it seems to always be in out like last year was in austin like yeah. 100 degrees so i don't know yeah getting old <laughs> all right for the record i would have said the same thing at 21 i still, <laughs> I still don't like getting like, music blasted or trying to talk 